You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to Timothy. Our text will come from his letter to Titus. Those letters of Timothy and Titus have some similarities in them. And so we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 to read that chapter and to read the words of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing to Timothy. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths, and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Our text this morning comes from Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, the verses 6 through 8. Continue in the series from the book of Titus. We've heard in chapter 2, Paul instructing Titus on what to teach the older men. And the older women, the older women in turn are to teach the younger women. And this morning we come to the instructions for the young men. Titus chapter 2, the verses 6 through 8. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning we come to this text about young men. We'll see the connection later, but I'd like to propose to you in a a broad generalization that there are two kinds of young men that go to hockey games. If you think about it, certainly it's an over 
generalization, but we'll use it anyways. There are two kinds of young men that go to hockey games. They operate according to two different sets of rules. They're there for two entirely different purposes. One set of young men is there merely for entertainment. While the other set are there with a completely different mindset. They're there at a sense of calling, of of duty, because they're on a mission. They're on a mission to win, to win the prize. One group of men tends to be brash, loud. If you hear someone loud at the hockey game, it's probably that group of young men sitting up there behind you. You're given to drunkenness. They're there for the game, same game the other young men are there for, but their focus is completely different than the players who are down there on the ice. They're there for fun. They're, they're there to get out of that game and out of that environment everything that they can. They're there for their own pleasure. They're there to soak up the few hours of pleasure and distraction that that game has to offer them before returning home. And so they drink their beers and they eat their nachos and they carry on generally like a bunch of thugs. The other young men, the other group of young men has no time for this whatsoever. They're there entirely focused on the game. The other group is focused on the game, but these men are focused on the game in a completely different way. They're engaged minute by minute, second by second, in a relentless pursuit for the ultimate prize. Can you imagine one of these young men? Can you imagine Sidney Crosby? Sitting on the bench, drinking a beer, yelling at everyone on the ice. Can you imagine him munching on his nachos and cheese? Everyone else in the building would have no time for that. How about the Sedin twins sitting on the bench, taking pictures with their cell phones, sending them out on Twitter, tweeting their commentary on the game? Well, soon, if they were to do this, Soon they would be able to do that with no problem because their coach would realize this is not how you're supposed to do this and he would bench them and they'd have all the time for beer nachos and pictures that they wanted. Why are we talking about young men at hockey games? Well, let this serve as a picture of your mind as we enter into what Paul told Titus to say to young men. Let this serve as a picture about young men in the world today are basically two sets of young men. Some are merely spectators to what's actually going on in the world, while others are here for a completely different reason. They're here with a sense of calling, a sense of mission. They're here because they've been called by the Lord Jesus Christ and enlisted into his great battle to in search of the ultimate prize, The prize for which God has called them heavenward in Christ Jesus. The prize Paul speaks to the Philippians about. They've come to know the life-changing grace of God. The grace of God that actually changes their lives. Changes the way they think. Changes the way that they live. The grace of God that changes everything. Since they're confident that Jesus Christ has changed everything... They run so as to win the prize. They compete so as to win the prize. They focus their hearts. They focus their thoughts. They focus their minds upon serving the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that they do. 
As the Apostle Paul writes to Titus, he says, instruct young men in this way. Tell them about the grace of God and how that changes everything for them. And so we hear from the Word of God this morning the priorities Jesus Christ's grace-fueled priorities for young men. Young men are to be self-controlled. Young men are to be studious. And young men are to be silencers. Self-controlled, studious, and silencers. So, in the first place, young men, the priority of Jesus Christ through his grace for young men is that they be self-controlled. And in fact, in a direct sense, this is the only thing that young men are to be concerned about. Young men, there's really only one word for you this morning. One word. One word that Paul gives. It's two words in English, and I realize that. In Greek, it's one word. Now, I don't know why everyone else gets several words. The older men are told to be several things. Temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. The older women have several things. The younger women have several things. And the young men get one thing. Be self-controlled. Now, the older men and the older women told to instruct the younger women. In fact, the elders already in chapter 1, everyone has been told to be self-controlled. So it's not like the young men are being singled out here as they're the only ones to be self-controlled. But when that's the only word that's given to you, when that's the only instruction, everybody else gets several instructions and you get one, then it has a little bit of emphasis, doesn't it? Be self-controlled. That word, as we've seen it several times already, has to do with with actually controlling your mind in the first place. It's about being sensible, sober-minded, thinking judiciously, having sober judgment. Be self-controlled. Now, why would Paul tell Titus to teach this to the young men in the church in Crete? Probably because if young men are any, were anything then like they are now, and they probably were because young men tend to be, in a broad generalization, tempted toward the same things, it's because self-control is not a virtue often practiced among young men. Self-control is not a virtue often practiced among Young men. In other words, young men are given to excess. Let me give you some examples of this. Picture in your mind. I'm just going to say two words, and there's going to a picture is going to appear in your mind. I'll say the words "party animal." What pops into your mind? Probably a picture of a young man. We think of a party animal, then we think of a young man. If I'm going to expect to hear anyone on the bus or on the street, or wherever I happen to be, overhearing a conversation, recounting their drinking exploits from the past weekend, it's probably going to be a young man who's doing that. If I hear a young man uh, bragging about how much alcohol he can tolerate, it's probably a young man who I'm hearing that from. Now, nobody actually says those things to me anymore, but they used to, so I know what happens. I know it happens among young men in the church as well. 
Some young men might be given to excess in drinking and in that sort of party lifestyle, but, but that's not the only area. Certainly not. Let's move to another area, and sadly and tragically, sometimes they come together. Let's think about driving. If there is some car that goes flying down your suburban street, or you should only be reasonably driving 40 or 50 kilometers an hour, but he's going 100, who do you think's behind the wheel in that car? It's probably some young man. Which group has the highest rates of speeding tickets and traffic accidents? It's young men. The, the system is different here in BC, in Ontario, where I was a young man. Um, insurance was, the price of insurance was related to which age category and gender category you fit in. Guess which people paid the highest premiums for insurance? It was the young men. Two, three, four times what everybody else was paying. But it's not only the college age crowd that this refers to. I said I was a young man in Ontario. I'm still a young man, according to what Paul's saying here. Because it's not just the, the young men, as we think about them today, maybe, you know, early 20s or maybe the, the stretch of their 20s. But Paul's actually got a broader category in mind here. There's good reason to think that Paul is speaking about men all the way up until their 40s. You have to remember that for Jewish people, you weren't really truly a man until you were 30 years old. So young men can go all the way up to their 40s. If the older men are, are men whose children are having children, then the younger men must be everyone below them. So we have a caricature of a young man in our minds, in our culture, but we ought to consider more broadly. And if you think about it more broadly, you'll, you'll see that young men all the way up into their forties are also given to excess. And maybe it's not drinking and maybe it's not fast driving, but it happens. What about spending? What about spending money? Who is the one who is more likely to go overboard buying a, a new car? You went out searching for one car and you came back with one that's $10,000 more. Who's more likely to do that? I would submit it's the young men. What about eating? Which demographic is most likely to overindulge in their eating habits? Perhaps in the recent Dine and Dash, you came to experience this. It's probably the young men. It's probably the men, the men all the way up to their 40s who are most likely to overindulge in their eating. Or you go to the flip side. What about exercise and sports? Which category of, of people is, is most likely to get too consumed in their sports? It's the young men. Or too consumed in their exercise, spending hours at the gym? Probably the young men. Which category, which group is likely to Spend too long at work. Spend too much time there. It's probably the young men. You could think of other areas as well, but I think we've made the case. Self-control is not something that young men are known for. Yet, in a singular way, self-control is what the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to as young men. Now, what is this self-control all about? As we've, as we've looked at this word before, I'll say it again. We've noticed that it has this emphasis on the mind. It's about being careful and judicious in your thinking. It's about not being rash and impetuous. 
It's about thinking first, then acting. It's about applying the work of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ, knowing that Jesus Christ has changed the world, and then saying, now how does that impact what I'm about to do? What I'm about to spend? Where my priorities are going to be? Being sensible and sober in the way that you live. Let's go back to the world of sports. Athletes have to do this. An athlete has to be disciplined with his physical training in order to be effective. But perhaps even more importantly, he has to be disciplined in his mind. The more mentally focused he can be in his preparation for the game and in his execution, the more effective he's going to be as an athlete. The best athletes are not simply physically talented but they are also extremely self-controlled, sensible, disciplined in their minds. They understand the big picture and they apply it to every situation on the ice, on the court, on the field, wherever they are. They're entirely focused on the task at hand. We'll now hear how sports becomes an analogy for young men in 1 Timothy 4, which we read together. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, Paul says to Timothy, rather, and then he uses the sports imagery, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself, focus your mind on being godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Young men, you have to learn to control your mind. But how? How? How are you going to exercise this self-control? Well, remember the context. Remember verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. The grace of God, in light of the grace of God, in light of the fact that you've been saved from your sins through the work of Jesus Christ, and he sent his spirit into the world with a mission, with a purpose... Therefore, be self-controlled. It's an unfortunate thing that often when the message is given to young men, very quickly that message becomes moralistic. When the message is given to young men, we speak to our teenagers, we speak to young men, we speak about young men, very quickly the message becomes moralistic. Young men, maybe it's because young men are, are so prone to show on the out, the out side of their lives, how weak they are in their exterior. They're so prone to excess and to the rashness and impetuousness that we think if we could just change their outward behavior, if we could just change the way that they do things, then the job would be done. Then then they'd be fine. But you know what happens when you when you train a young man to look good on the outside, to do the right things without changing the heart? Do you know what you make when you do that? You make a Pharisee. No change in the heart, but the outward actions conform to a certain set of rules. That's not what Paul is calling. It's not what the Holy Spirit is calling young men to. It's not about outward conformity with no change of heart, but it's about appropriating the grace of God in our hearts, knowing what Jesus Christ has done for us, and having that change us from the outside, from the inside out. It's not, self-control is not a call for young men to whitewash their lives in religious garb while on the outside it's full of sin, worldly passions, and evil desires. 
so that maybe everybody else in church see the way you dress, see the way you conduct yourself in public. They think, wow, he's doing a great job. It's not about that. It's about your life, your heart, and your mind before Jesus Christ. It's about living humbly by the grace of Jesus Christ. It has to do with the renewing of your mind, changing from the outside in by growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, by meditating on what Jesus Christ has done for young men and what he is calling them to by his grace. Remember Titus chapter 1, verse 1. The knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect, and the knowledge of the truth, focusing our minds upon the truth of God, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That knowledge leads to godliness. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul says this in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Young men, the grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ has appeared. And he teaches us to say no to worldly passions and to ungodliness. Does that miracle of salvation, does what Jesus Christ has accomplished, most certainly, does that change you? Has that gripped your mind? Has it gripped your heart? Jesus Christ has come and he's changed everything for the world, whether you want to recognize that or not. He has. It's true. He died on a cross and then he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. He changed everything for this world. Has he changed everything for your life? Young men are to be self-controlled. They're also to be studious. Now, studious of what? Well, studious, in fact, of the good example that's given to them. Here Paul commands Titus, yes, Titus the minister, to provide an example for the young men. Now, you may ask, the older women were supposed to teach the younger women, providing them an example, teaching them how to live. Why not have the older men teach the younger men? If you look at how the elders and the older men are to live, you look at what Paul told them to how to live, to be uh, self-controlled, worthy of respect, temperate, and you compare that with what he says here to the young men, then you'll see that there is this relationship. There is an example there for the older men to give to the younger men. Absolutely. There's a place for mentorship. There's a place for leadership. There's a place for older men teaching younger men what Jesus Christ calls them to in this life. But there's a particular reason why Titus, that minister there, that the, the missionary or church planter, whatever exactly he was, why he was to be on the forefront of this discipling. It has to do with the other people who are trying to give a message to these young men, the false teachers in Crete. It's because of the false teachers. Chapter 1, Paul spoke about these false teachers. And there's a direct correlation and opposition between how Titus is to model how the grace of God changes you and what the, the false teachers teach. 
The false teachers we read in 1 verse 16 are unfit for good. Titus, on the other hand, is to teach what is good. The false teachers, according to chapter 1 verse 10, deceive. Verse 12, they lie. Verse 14, they reject the truth. Verse 11, they seek dishonest gain. Verse 15, they're corrupted and there's nothing pure within them. Titus, on the other hand, is to show integrity and seriousness in the way that he teaches. The false teachers, in 1 verse 10, are mere talkers. Titus is to show soundness of speech that is above reproach. So it's not as though there's no other mentoring responsibilities, but it's the contrast with the false teachers that's particularly in view here. Because the reality in this world is that there are many leaders. There are many people who think they're on a mission, who think they have a calling for young men, and they're trying to bring young men into this. The example that comes to mind, we don't know all the details yet about what happened in Boston. It seems that they latched on to some teaching, some teaching about how young men are to live and even how young men are to die. In the world of Islam, there's lots of teachers. In the world around us, there's lots of teachers. They're calling especially young men. False teachers within the church calling young men, seeking to persuade them and to join forces. There are lots of examples where young men have fallen with those whose teachings are contrary and contradictory to the gospel, to the love and the kindness of God, our Savior. Perhaps it's because young men are so impetuous and rash. Because they have this zeal and this desire and they pursue everything in life to its full extent, whether good or bad. So many teachers latch onto that and pull them toward the bad by their teachings. Titus is to be an example for them and to pull them toward the good. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preach the grace of God that has appeared and pull them toward what is good. So what should those young men be looking for in Titus? They should be looking for integrity. Teaching with integrity. So he has integrity as a person and he's the one who teaches. Doctrine that fits together with life. A life and lifestyle that matches with sound doctrine and faith in Jesus Christ. And he is to teach with seriousness because this matters. It's not a light thing. It's not frivolous. It's not entertainment. It's serious. The word also could be translated as dignity. Teach with dignity. You know that Jesus Christ has brought salvation to this world. You know that he's called you into his service. And so everything that you do is infused with purpose and it gives you dignity. It gives worth, usefulness to everything that you do. That Titus does as a minister. And he's to teach with soundness of speech. That phrase, sound, has come up earlier, one chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 2, verse 1. We've noticed that it, it it's a word for healthy, in fact. It has the, the connotation of, of, so when Paul said it in chapter 2, verse 1, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine, with healthy doctrine, with life-giving, life-affirming doctrine, life-sustaining doctrine. Titus' example of speech is to be that which which stimulates and promotes and encourages a fully-orbed life of joy and thankfulness among his flock in Crete. 
Because putting it into perspective, this is what Jesus Christ has come to do. When you're, when you know the grace of God, when you live by the grace of God, you are truly living. You're living the way God intended you to live. That's what life is all about. Everything else is, is just window dressing. Everything else is a bait and switch. It says this is the good life, but it's not. It's a path of death. Living according to the gospel of grace. Living in the light of Jesus Christ, that's truly living. So the most immediate application for this example comes to rest on the minister of the word. Upon myself. Upon those elders whose task it is to preach and to teach. This is what I as a minister, this is what all ministers are called to do. They must do. And they must be held accountable to this. Teach with integrity, with seriousness, and with soundness of speech. Peter says that when we speak, we should do so as though we're speaking the very words of God. How does that change everything that you say? As though speaking the very words of God in everything that you say. For the one whose life is given in speaking, preaching, teaching, speaking in so many different ways, especially to the young men of the congregation, the speech of the minister is to be exemplary. And so the application for you is twofold. Pray for your minister. Pray that the grace of God would continue to work in his life, in his heart, in his mind, through his speech. And hold us accountable to it. So that we can serve as a good example to the young men. So that the church of Jesus Christ can be made stronger. Now why? Why is this necessary? Why does Titus have to live like this? Well, Titus' example is to be a contrast to the false teachers. He has to give this example because it has this apologetic thrust. It has to do with those who are not a part of the church. Now, when we think of apologetics, usually we're speaking about using words to defend the Christian faith against its critics. So we're talking about arguments. We're talking about, about how to convince others outside of the church that what we believe is, is true, is rational, is, is godly. And this certainly has a place, these arguments. But what Paul is saying here is that it's more the lifestyle of the, of the preacher and of the young men that will have a, a, a shaming and a silencing effect on the critics of the gospel, the false teachers and others. When the preachers of the gospel, and they give this example to young men, when they practice self-control and when they grow in seriousness and integrity and sound speech, then they will show forth the power of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ, which can change even young men. can change even young men. Completely change their life. Make them a shining example of God's grace. So this is not simply Titus's mandate to, to shame and to silence those outside the church by his words. But it's in the context of his example to the young men. So it's especially through the careful preaching and teaching of the word of God. That the church is meant to increase and, and propagate those who put to shame and silence 
the false teachers. It's through the preaching and the teaching of the word of God that more and more people, young men, whether they become ministers or not, is is not in view here. But by the example given in the preaching and teaching, young men will grow up and will put to shame and silence critics of the church. They'll make the church of Jesus Christ stronger. This is meant to strengthen and fortify the church against the false teachings that discredit the gospel and bring shame on the church. A wild, godless young man, especially within the church. And the way that he lives and the way that he pursues his passions in ignorance of, to the neglect of, to the rejection of the grace of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ, that young man can bring a lot of shame on the church. Bring a lot of shame on himself by the way that he lives. But by being self-controlled, through righteous living, through being sound and serious in his speech, through his integrity, the shame falls not on him, nor on the church, nor on the Lord Jesus Christ, but instead on the enemies of the church. That's the power of the gospel. Turn back to that tendency of young men to cast off self-control in favor of pleasure or money or power. And you can see Paul's vision for ministry, for the preaching and teaching in the church. Not everyone's going to become a preacher, but through faithfulness in preaching, successive generations of young men will grow up living in light of the grace of God, exercising self-control and living with integrity, with seriousness and with life-giving speech. The grace of God, communicated through the preaching of the word, creates young men who are well equipped to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in all of their life. Focus, intensity, passion, purpose, and with self-control. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.